Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance podcast, the University of Alberta Tolkien Society book study for the winter term of 2016. Join us this semester as we read and discuss the Fellowship of the Ring. I hope you enjoy it. Because nobody knew I liked maps. <laughs> you're, um, you're a cardiologist. 
company's journey through Moria. Ooh. I will pass it around. Yeah, sweet. So pass that around, and like literally, I promise I have these. I'm so disorganized. <laughs> um, okay. I will find this submission at some point. Oh my god. It's at my house if it's not here, Sophia. I did not lose it. Sure, <laughs> circle <laughs> and everyone can say something that they liked about the chapters this week while I continue to look through my pile of papers. Um, so does anyone have something that they really are burning to say? Okay, Jesse. Uh, my favorite part of this chapter is when they're all discussing, hey, should we go to Ministeria or follow further to Mordor? And Clegoris says, I say we go to Ministeria. And he replies, you know, I'd like to go to Ministeria, but I'll follow Frodo wherever. Legolas immediately changes. <laughs> yeah, Frodo. Follow Frodo. <laughs> true, true friendship. Okay, so thanks for uh, telling us about that. And now I found Sophia's mission. <laughs> um, Sophia drew two excellent comics. Would you like to say anything about them before I pass them around? Um, I can't draw very well. <laughs> <laughs> They're good. I like them. It's better than me, which is and good. And also credit to Kelsey because it totally wasn't my joke. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've already read these, but uh, I'll pass them around so everyone else can read them. They're pretty great. I like them. Um, okay, awesome. So I will deliberate on the challenges once I've like seen them. Um, and we can continue on with Dan. What was your favorite part of the challenges? Uh, I didn't need a rest reading though, and I can't remember anything specific, so I'll pass. Yeah. <laughs> I like Jesse's thing. <laughs> um, I think my favorite was probably when Frodo and Sam are talking about Gollum, and they're just like, yeah, hey, there's this Gollum guy who's following us, we're gonna watch for him on our own, we're gonna be self-sufficient here because we're awesome. Yep. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, just Sam in general, Ran up 
to join Matthew's lunch. Matt? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just kind of skimmed through it again, and there's also a lot going on in these chapters. Like, but I think probably the dialogue between Boromir and Frodo is just it's pretty insightful. There's a lot. There's a lot.
like, when I was reading it, I think, like, the river is supposed to just be, like, indecision, right? Because, like, they're kind of on the fence right now. They're like, we could go east. Yeah, we could go east and go, like, straight to Mordor. Or we could go west and, like, stop by in Minas Tirith, and they're kind of unwilling to make that decision until they absolutely have to. And it seems like, to me at least, that the point when they have to make that decision isn't even necessarily determined by the river. I think it's more determined by the company or, like, Boromir that, that determines that they have to actually settle down and choose where to go. Um, okay, so, yeah, so they're just kind of uh, journeying on the river. Then we have that, like, um, nice part that people mentioned where Frodo and Sam notice that Gollum's following them and then decide that they're just going to have to keep a lookout themselves for Gollum and totally don't think to tell anyone else about it until Aragorn's like, yeah, I already knew that was happening. Are you going to say oh, yeah, something? Yeah, I was going to say this, that Aragorn did the same thing. Yeah. Wasn't going to tell anybody. Mm -hmm. That's um, super cooperative. Yeah. <laughs> ben? Uh, just a quick unrelated thing before we get past it, but uh, another thing that I just remembered I liked was uh, right after they leave Lothlorien, at a point Sam's like, what, it's a new moon, but it was like just before a new moon. We were only in there for like a week. Mm -hmm. He like he thinks that it was like no time passed, and mm -hmm. reality it was like a month passed, mm -hmm. but he thinks, or like his first instinct is to be like, hmm, magic, instead of hmm, time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Sophia? Um, another thing that, that, that was an interesting transition is it's like the Great River chapter is kind of a transition into the world of men because they just left Lothlorien mm -hmm. and then they're traveling through like kind of gross wastes for a while and mm -hmm. then they reach the Argonath. Mm -hmm. And the part where they reach the Argonath is really interesting and super cool, but it's also this like big physical symbol that they're entering like formerly Gondor that has fallen, so mm -hmm. they're entering like the ruined land of men, and it also sort of foreshadows that that's going to be a struggle now, really, mm -hmm. if it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, those are really good. I was going to touch all those points too. Um, yeah, by actually, those, those things happen later in the chapter. But I was gonna, the next thing I was actually gonna ask about was that shape that Jesse mentioned. Um, so there's, there's that point where, um, let me see, it's on page 508 of my book. Um, yeah, there's a point where like they, they get attacked out of the darkness and they, there's this weird thing that happens when, um, so like Frodo and Legolas are like looking out at their, at their kind of assailants and it says, but now rising and sailing up from the south, the great clouds advance, sending out dark outriders into the starry fields. A sudden dread fell on the company. Um, Elbereth Gilthoniel sighed Legolas as he looked up. Even as he did so, a dark shape, like a cloud and yet not a cloud, for it moved far more swiftly, came out of the blackness in the south and sped towards the company, blotting out all light as it approached. Soon it appeared as a great winged creature, blacker than the pits of night. Fierce voices rose up to greet it from across the water. Frodo felt a sudden chill running through him and clutching at his heart, uh, and clutching at his heart. There was a deadly cold, like a memory of an old wound in his shoulder. He crouched down as if to hide. Suddenly, the great bow of Lorien sang. Shrill went the arrow from the elven string. Frodo looked up. Almost above him, the winged shape swerved. There was a harsh croaking scream as it fell out of the air, vanishing down into the gloom of the eastern shore. The sky was clear again. I thought that was, like, a cool thing that happened in this chapter. What, what is that thing? What is it? Jesse? Pretty sure it's Nazgul on the Feldies. Or just... No, it, it, it's, it's the witch I think the Nazgul's there just because he's got the Frodo feels that wound in his shoulder. 
His magical sense is tingling. <laughs> I don't know, I thought that was cool. And also, yeah, it probably is an asshole in a film. Is Ariel? I like how the language is used to describe it. It's not, Lengua shoots it down, it's the, the bow of Morgan. And so it's made very, very clear that this is sort of like this older elvish power against this older evil power. So, mm -hmm. like, the things are not named, the, the agents are not named, but it's just these two sort of like uh, representatives of two different opposing powers. Mm -hmm. Totally. The boat is plus right. 50 damage against dark creatures. And I think it's an interesting, because it said the sky was clean again. So it really associates evil with kind of like this physical pain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like the, the idea that, and that kind of has like a sense of corruption to it too. Mm -hmm. Totally. Sophia? Um, adding to what Ariel said, he also says Elbereth Gilgoniel straight away. Which is neat because they do say that before like every single evil creature, which very much places it as this epic struggle. But since we haven't got to the part where they say that to Shelob yet, it also calls back to the Black Rider, mm -hmm. where like Frodo shouts Elvareth Gilthoniel at mm -hmm. it. So I feel like that's like that's a hint as well as you know Frodo's like stabbing wound that this is a Black Rider. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. You almost you can almost see it as a, a almost like a challenge too because Legolas says it first and then this strange beast that if you're a first time reader you don't know what it is but something that fills you with dread mm -hmm. it's coming almost like the darkness is challenging the supremacy of that it's not directly but you sort of get that feeling when they're placed side by side as events yeah yeah it's not yeah it's not quite I, so powerful yeah yeah. Jesse? I thought it was interesting too how Legolas just sighed as he said, Elbert of It's mm -hmm. almost like just this weird, like, oh god damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting because, like, A, the fact that, like, a Nazgul would just randomly appear at this particular point, and B, the fact that Legolas was able to take him down with, like, one, one shot from the bow, I mean, from the bow of Lorien, so, like, obviously that's that's a lot of power, but I thought it was kind of interesting to have this like foreshadow here. It wasn't the Nazgul that was taking. Yeah, he hit the beast. It was the beast. Yeah. Um, Sophia. I also thought it was really cool that immediately afterwards they compare it to the Balrog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote that down too. Yeah. Um, which I guess makes sense because they're both. They like, both have wings. Well, I mean, <laughs> but the surface of people, I guess one might say otherwise. The Balrog doesn't have wings in it. It does. It does. The text doing says this. so. We already got. We already passed this. We talked about this in the Mind of Moria, so we're gonna we're gonna keep going. Um, we'll talk about it again. <laughs> no, we're done. It's conclusive. Um, so. <laughs>
So I thought that was kind of cool. And I think it's kind of um, like echoes what we've been talking about, about how like the elf worldview is so different from the worldview of the men and the hobbits because they have such long lives. Um, that it is both like the time passes very quickly and very slowly for them. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> so you all get to have my, my views on that. Um, okay, then we get this part that um, Rick always brought up last time we talked about. It. I think we had like a half hour discussion on the use of the word portage in this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know how many people know this, but Tolkien made it like uh, made an effort to only include words uh, in the Lord of the Rings that were more than 100 years old. Oh, Ariel, uh, seems no, to I was going to say that actually stuck out to me, and I was like, hmm, I hope this will come up in book club. <laughs> 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 Tell us more. We talked about it at length last time we did Fellowship of the Ring. But yeah, so Tolkien uh, made an effort to only use words that were like more than 100 years old in the English language, or something like that. Someone could correct me if I'm wrong. Pretty old words. Um, but portage is not one of those words, because portage comes from the French word. Right? I speak French. Yes, yes it is. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so there was, I don't, I don't really know what to say about that. I feel like uh, Tolkien just let that one slip by. Well, because I was thinking, like, what else would he have used? Mm -hmm. You know, like, how else would you describe it without using, like, It would have to be very worthy. Carrying mm -hmm. the boats. Um, John's? Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't here for fellowship before, mm -hmm. but I remember he showed up again with Louver in Edoras. Yes. <laughs> it's just, there's not really another word you can use for this thing other than an extremely long-winded description that would just be awkward. Yeah, probably. I think you're right. Nick and then Corinne. Well, and it's just the fact that the English language today borrows, like, so many words from French. There's just sometimes no escaping it. Well, I mean, yeah, but, like, Tolkien purposely made an effort to not use those words. Not here. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he made it. Mine was sort of on that line where, like, can we count it as an English word at this point? Because it would have been stolen so long ago at this point. And that word is at least in use since the 1600s when they would have had to use Portage coming into Canada and going across. So, I mean, it's an old word in and of itself mm -hmm. on that for that purpose. Yeah. That is true. I think it's sort of older in French, but I think at the point that Tolkien was writing this, that had only been recently sort of been now it's a super old word because, you know, it's 2016. But um, back then it was not. So it seems sort of out of, out of keeping with the rest of his vocabulary. Mm -hmm. so. And that's because, in fact, it is. <laughs> um, Josh? You would, you would probably know stuff about that because I think he did a bunch of work on the dictionary. Yeah. 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 He did, yeah. Yes. He was close friends he with the guy like, who like created the Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, he wrote like these or Justice is it bad that I didn't think it really jumped out at all? No, I didn't notice it the first time. <laughs> me, me neither, yeah. Because I'm not a linguist, so... You're not. No. I'm a physicist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a scientist. But, yeah. but anyway, I think, I think yeah, I think it, we, we agree kind of that it, it's, it's a pretty unique word and it would be hard to replace except with a lot of wordiness in this case. But it does stick out. Um... So, yeah, interesting, interesting. I will probably never know why he used the word portage in this case. Maybe it was up there. Um, okay. So, after the portage, um, they, they get back on the river, 
and they pass through the Argonaut, which I want to talk about because I think it's really cool. I think it's very interesting that everyone has this, like, quite a pronounced reaction to riding through the passage of the Argonaut. Um, yes, what do, what do people think about it? Um, yeah, Corinne? Uh, sort of going off, I think it was Sophia's point where we're coming, you know, out of Elvendom and into the, the kingdoms of men, and it's, I think it's really interesting whenever you come up from, to something from Numenor, because it's always like, oh, the, you know, the grand scale of Numenor, and, like, the entirety of Gondorian civilization is built on the bones of a world that doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore, and I think you can, it's sort of a palatable feeling like this, this the Numenorians built this, and it's stayed, and it, you know, it's, it's got a staying power that's almost unnatural in the world of men, mm-hmm. because they themselves are so transient, and it's something that people made that not only are they dead in and of themselves, but that whole civilization is itself dead, yeah. and they're coming through that. And that's true. I think it is true. Like, a lot of the stuff we see that's really old are like, oh, these are old elven artifacts from, like, the first or second age. Like, elf smiths built these. But the Argonauts are really unique because it's not the elves. This is the Numenorians. These are men that built these statues. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't even think about that. Tristan? It, following off that, it reminds me a lot of, like, the Roman civilization, the Roman ruins in both Britain and, you know, the rest of Europe, because the Romans. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. So, that thought of the civilization that is at that point completely dead, but still has these artifacts that linger around the mm-hmm. huge aqueducts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really cool. Uh, Matt and then Sophia? I think in his letters he likened them to the Egyptians too, right? With the monumental scale mm-hmm. of how they, how they like build things too. So it kind of like evokes those you know, like gigantic statues and stuff from ancient times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, Sophia? This isn't really an intellectual point, but I, for, I, like, I read these books before I watched the movies, mm-hmm. so I didn't even have the movie's visual of the Argonaut, but when I read this chapter, like I got chills mm-hmm. because I could picture it so clearly, mm-hmm. and there were just like these two, you know, massive kings, mm-hmm. like statues standing up on the river, and it's even more interesting because Frodo doesn't recognize them right away, they're far enough away that they look like cliffs, and mm-hmm. then as he gets closer, like, the details start to be made out, and he can see that they're, you know, like, wrought in the figure of, like, people, mm-hmm. I suppose, and I thought it was also interesting that they've been weathered mm-hmm. so much, but they're still, like, but I guess they're, they're still standing. Like tall. And so it's, yeah, so you get just such a strong sense of the history of Middle-earth when you pass the Argonaut, because, like like people already said, you've gotten elf wars and that sort of thing, but here you get the history of men, and it adds a lot of realism to the world. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about the Argonaut, too, is a lot of times when you get all this, because you get so much elf lore in, like, The Fellowship of the Ring, that's supposed that, that, like, adds history. And, like, it's really interesting if you know the history. But I like the Argonaut because you can get the sense of history even without knowing it. Because, right, like, ancient kings, like, we can all kind of picture, like, ancient kings of men, right? Um, as opposed to some of the elf lore where you're like, oh, the tale of Baron and Luthien. Like, that's kind of cool, but I don't really get it if I haven't read it. Um, so, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's, like, it's a really, like, easy to relate to image. Um, Ariel? I like that this inspires awe and fear in Frodo, who actually <laughs> Yeah, it has to be reassured by Aragorn not to fear. So, like, like you said with the um, a lot of the elf lore and, and ancient artifacts and stuff like that. 
Well, elves are good with a capital G. Mm -hmm. So even if things are a little creepy, you can still be kind of, um, you can still be kind of sure that it's sort of a safe space. Whereas like with men, it's very, very clear that this is ambivalent and you don't know whether it's good or bad, which is further complicated right afterwards by Barbie. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have no idea if this is a comforting thing mm -hmm. or you're like passing some sort of monument to a threatening power, which mm -hmm. I mean, they, the great figure is silent but threatening. The, mm -hmm. you know, like, the language that's used here is all very you know, like, full of awe and that kind of stuff, but then also re-emphasizes how just, um, like you shouldn't um, feel that you're safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Totally, and I think that might even be like a difference between the history of men and the history of elves, because like, you know, the history of elves, they came like, as soon as they like, emerged, sort of, the Valar kind of brought them over to Valinor and everything, but we know the history of men is a lot more uh, like they interacted directly with like Morgoth, they interacted with Sauron when they were in Numenor. So they uh, they have like this this history of like more of this like morally trying to figure out what side they're on. But it's cool though because then they develop into complex characters. Nick and I'll go around the circle. Well, and you also get this sort of common thread with like Numenorean men, how they have these sort of very intense gazes and this sort of kind of gravitas behind them because. You know, in Return of the King, when Aragorn sort of starts to assume his rightful place when he's facing up against the mouth of Sauron at the Black Gate, he just stares at him, and the mouth of Sauron, like, cowers away and thinks he's being under attack just because of the sheer sort of force. And then I think it's, like, here when Frodo sees Aragorn, and all of a sudden, they, you know, like, you know, he's, he's no longer Strider. He is, you know, son of Arathorn, the king. Like, he just has this, this sort of presence about him. And just something about, like, you know, Numenorean men, they just have this sort of kind of extra something about them that sets them apart from from, you know, say, the uh, men from Rohan. Minas Anor, the walls of my own city, and that's like the old name of Minas Tirith he mm -hmm. uses. 
So it kind of it brings it back to one of the kings of you know ages past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Frank, um, I think sort of just to bring it back to Frodo, I think it's very interesting. He, you know, his cowering reaction in regards to how he reacted in Lothlorien, mm-hmm. sort of thing, which for mortals is also it's very strange. It's other. It's the perilous realm. But there wasn't that same. There wasn't that same element of fear mm-hmm. out of that. Like he 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 could endure. Galadriel's gaze for probably the longest out of the hobbits at least. He could endure that for quite some time. Um, but he is straight up afraid of going through mm-hmm. the Argonath and I think part of that is the ambiguity and the ambivalence of the world of men and probably feeling that he like, I think it's probably one of the first times that you kind of realize that like hobbits are small at, mm-hmm. for a very long time. Tolkien doesn't tend to dwell on that, but that's a Hobbits are small in the world of men, but not necessarily yeah. in Lothlorien. But I think it also could be, because Frodo was already an elf friend, like, even before he left the Shire, <laughs> right? And, like, and even a lot of, like, you get the sense in the Shire, in the Shire even with Sam and stuff, that, like, uh, hobbits, they kind of know who elves are. Like, they've seen elves, they've seen elves passing by, and, like, some people talk to them, like Bilbo and Frodo do. Um, but, like, elves are kind of a presence that's near them. But you get the sense that for most hobbits, like, men are, are very either, like, like especially the men in Gondor, because it's so far away, they're either very unknown or very just untrusted in general, like like the way that hobbits think about the men in Bree, even. Um, whereas they seem to already sort of have like, a little more, like, Frodo especially, have a little more knowledge about elves. Um, so, um, before, well, I'm going to go around again, but um, I just... Like, my, what I thought was, was really interesting was actually Boromir's reaction. Because um, obviously, like, Aragorn, he's, like, the returning king of, of Numenor and of Gondor, so he's, like, feeling pretty good about these Argonauts. And then for Frodo and Sam, they're very intimidating. But even for Boromir, like, even Boromir bowed his head as the boats rolled by, frail and fleeting as little leaves under the enduring shadow of the sentinels of Numenor. Um, so I was just, like, wondering what was going on there, and if it was, like, Boromir because he was kind of feeling bad about what he was going to do next, or maybe Boromir feels like he ha- like that he has to bow down because he's not, like, the Numenorean king like Aragorn is. He's, he's from Gondor, but I think he's much farther removed from that line. I don't know. That's my question. Anyway, um, so Matt and then Josh, and then we'll go around. Well, and that it kind of stood, like, I mean, you know, it struck me as a moment both of like solemnity at these mm-hmm. at these statues, as well as like perhaps kind of harboring some like guilt or like uncertainty with some of the thoughts he's harboring and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but then just going back, um, I was gonna say about the hobbits. Well, hobbits have like in general have the more of like an affinity with elves. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're men, like things like calendars or like referring to like, it's, like the sun as a she or mm-hmm. the moon, the same way as elves, and not like um, dwarves. But also when they come into their realms, it's more of like. A, like a hidden or harder presence to get into mm-hmm. and, and, and they come in and, and then just wonder and stuff but with men like they're entering the realm and they don't even like really possess the lands or the power to possess them up to these statues but as soon as they're coming into the domain there's like this strong and foreboding and prominent presence there mm-hmm. even though that's not even quite their realm anymore whereas with elves it's so much more like hidden and subtle mm-hmm. so it kind of affects it too Um, I just want to go off on a bit of a different area. Mm-hmm. Um, I just about the river underneath the Argonath. Mm-hmm. How they're they're going through a chasm, and all of a sudden, 
everything's speeding up. Mm -hmm. um, I, I personally would take that as a metaphor where they've been traveling down the river, it's nice and slow and placid, coming out of Lothlorien. But now they're coming into the world of men and all of a sudden everything is speeding up. Because mm -hmm. the men live significantly faster than the elves do mm -hmm. with their shortened lifespans and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think so. I like that. Uh, Sophia? Um, I also think that in, in the language, the language is really interesting because there's a lot of shadow and darkness mm -hmm. in the whole passage. Like, they, they're under the enduring shadow of the sentinels of Numenor, and it talks about the dark chasm of the gates, the black waters, um, and then despite, I know, like I know we already talked about Aragorn, but it's a nice contrast that like this darkness kindles the light in Aragorn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even though him with glowing eyes is sort of a weird image. But, and then the next time they get light is at the end where they get through and mm -hmm. there's like this widening, dazzling light for mm -hmm. them. So I just thought it's like an interesting journey because everybody else kind of goes through the darkness to get to the light. Mm -hmm. But Aragorn's like, you know, I have nothing to fear for this shadow, and then mm -hmm. becomes light himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Arya? Just going back to Boromir and Valley, mm -hmm. I, um, I read it more as like a, a reverence in the presence of mm -hmm. um, sort of the history of, of uh, Gondor, mm -hmm. and like acknowledgement that like he, you know, like he's the son of the steward. Uh, Nick and then Sophia? 
Well, well, one thing that just came to me is that, you know, they are going to have to sort of like the benevolent statues, like people have been saying, but also like they, they contrast against those two sort of watcher statues that Frodo and Sam come across when they're in, when they enter Mordor. Mm -hmm. Those sort of, uh, when they come to the tower, those two, like those are sort of the darker equivalents. They're kind of, the, you know, there's all this sort of malevolence and the dark presence about them. The Argonath is sort of like the like sort of Gondorian, kind of a more positive, benevolent counterparts to those. Mm -hmm. so, so they are, this kind of thing is like echoed later on in the books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, totally. Sophia? Um, I do think that ultimately it kind of comes down to the fact that like when elves are defending their own and putting up wards on their own territory, then the elves have the backing of being inherently good. I was going to say the elves have the backing, because I was thinking about that too, and I would kind of say the elves have the backing of, like, being sort of, like, more magical, whereas when you enter Lorien, you can tell that, like, you're in elf territory just because the elves are, like, kind of magical, and so they can make you feel things, whereas the men have to, like, actually build statues to be like, yo, you're in our territory. And yeah. don't, like, walls. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry. Things, you know? <laughs> um, what more were you going to say? Yeah, no, like, 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 definitely that, but, like, when, like, when elves build wards, they might be weird and kind of scary. But they never really strike fear unless you're an orc mm -hmm. because they, like everything else, do is good generally. <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the third age now, yeah. it seems more. <laughs> in the first age. <laughs> As a general rule, they have more of that inclination. Yeah. Yeah, whereas, like, for men, um, they built, like, a defensive statue, but there's nothing inherently good about it and nothing magical. Yeah, you totally get that sense here, yeah. I think it's also an ambiguous symbol now because of the fact that it's been, like, disconnected from mm -hmm. Minas Tirith because it's no longer the gates to Gondor. It's, like, the gates and then awkward evil land and then eventually you get to Gondor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that's true. I think that's a big thing because you guys were saying, like, oh, when you get into Lorien, everyone felt safe. But when you're across the Argonoth, they don't feel safe. And I think it's probably because, well, I mean... The Argonoth are Gondor no longer. Yeah. Right well, the Argonoth are no longer the gate, the true gates to the realm of Gondor, right? Like Gondor is. I mean, Numenor has kind of fallen into ruin, and Gondor is now much further back and has to protect their land much further back than the gates of Argonoth. So, I mean, truly, they aren't safe once they cross the gates. They're still in kind of uncharted or no man's land, I guess. Um, Corinne? I think part of that comes to it's the gate of kings, and there is no king in Gondor. I uh, guess. Yeah, totally. Aragorn hasn't, you know, taken up the mantle yet, so it's it's still run by the sewers. So it's really in that way, it's also not the true gates because there are no kings to yeah. represent, except for these giant statues that scare the crap out of everyone. Yeah, fire. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Okay, cool. So they pass through the Argonoth, and then we get to chapter ten. So they finally realize that they can't just keep floating down the river all the way to the sea. That's not going to work for them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to have to be active and make decisions. What? So, so the company gets out of the boats and um, decides to make, make a decision of where they're going to go. And um, uh, Aragorn says this interesting line where he says, Well, Frodo, I fear or yeah. Basically, everyone's like, okay, which way are we going to go? And Aragorn says, well, Frodo, I fear that the burden is laid upon you. You are the bearer appointed by the council. Your own way, you alone can choose. In this matter, I cannot advise you. I am not Gandalf, and though I have tried to bear his part, I do not know what design or hope he had for this hour, if indeed he had any. Most likely, it seems that you were, if he were here now, the choice would still wait on you. Such is your fate. And so I liked this paragraph because it was very 
it's very interesting that um, they use like the line, the choice is yours, this is your choice, but it is your fate that you have to make this choice. And I was like, that seems like really, like you're sending a lot of signals here about like free will, because it's like, because Aragorn's basically saying, you have to make the choice, that's your fate. But your fate is to make a choice. I don't know, I thought that was interesting. Bring? Well, I remember earlier when in the Council of Elrond, we were talking about how sometimes there were like, things are something fixed. Mm -hmm. Like someone had to take the ring to Moria, but then how it happens can change. Mm -hmm. So I think that might be another one of those things where uh, a decision must be made mm -hmm. by Frodo, but um, depending on what decision he makes, the fate can go in many different directions. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I like what I think is also cool here too is that it's kind of implied later in this chapter that so Frodo is like, oh, this is a lot of work. Like I can't believe you're playing this all on me. I gotta go off on my own to think. But as Sam points out later in the chapter, Frodo already knew his choice. Like he already knew which way he was gonna go. He was just too scared to do it. <laughs> so I think that is speaks a lot to Frodo's character and sort of what's going through his head here, Arya? I don't know, I found it very empathetic just because, like, yeah. he knows exactly what he wants to do, but doesn't know how exactly to say that to people. Mm -hmm. He wants to have, like, some, some time to go away and, like, you know, like, work himself up to it. Or, mm -hmm. And, um, which, I don't know, it's a pretty, you know, like, catchy decision. And how do you break to, like, say, Boromir, who is, like, gunning for Ministeria the entire time? Mm -hmm. No, I don't actually want to go to Ministeria, but I still like you, Boromir, as a person. You're a great guy. But <laughs> I just don't respect that decision. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. And I think it, it echoes a lot of the conspiracy and mass chapter right at the beginning of the fellowship because there's actually a line here. I didn't underline it, so I can't read it for you exactly because I don't know where it is. Um, but where Frodo's like, "How would I leave Merry and Pippin behind? Like, like I can't. Like, they're gonna want to come with me. So my only solution is that I have to go off on my own because, like, or else they're just gonna follow me again. Like the conspiracy and mass. Yeah. So it, it was very. And it's 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 kind of the same thing where Frodo is like thinking of his friends and thinking of other people and like he knows his journey but he's trying to spare everyone else from like the hard the hardship that that's gonna that that's gonna bring them and also like the heartbreak when he tells them that they can't come with him so he's very yeah it is it is very empathetic he's just he's trying to like i don't know not hurt anyone's feelings and also make sure he's that they don't come on this creepy quest with him tristan but at the same point he doesn't seem to be thinking of the greater good i mean his quest is all important. It's for the stake of the entire world. Mm -hmm. And he seems much more concerned about the lives of his friends than he does about the success of the overall quest. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a problem because he's trying to walk away from everyone else and do this himself, mm -hmm. but he has a better chance if he takes other people with him. That's actually a really good point, and I think we'll have some uh, counter arguments for that. Uh, Sophia and then Arya? Before the counter argument, sorry, this is <laughs> but I just wanted to quickly draw attention to the line where Sam is. Sam had has Sam's been watching everybody in the company for the past two chapters, like including Gollum and Boromir, who are you know the people you should have an eye on. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't actually said anything or spoken up, mm -hmm. and so all he kind of goes is it says that Sam just mutters. Plain as a pike staff it is, but it's no good Sam Yamji putting in his spoke just now. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to note that both Frodo and Sam obviously know exactly what has to happen, mm -hmm. but 
but everybody, like for everybody else, it's really unclear. Mm -hmm. So they're debating. And also that Frodo doesn't realize that Sam is on the same page as him. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't know that someone else is kind of backing him or corroborating like his instinct that he needs to just go to Mordor. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes sense because if Frodo did realize that, he would probably try to put a stop to it because he doesn't even want Sam to come with him, right? Yeah. But it happens anyway. Aru? Um, oh, about Frodo um, caring more about his friends and the ultimate um, uh, outcome of the quest, I still think that right now we're getting this feeling that Frodo still doesn't really know what the, like, what the import of this quest is. I mean, people told him that, but it, he, and he like had a scary encounter with an asshole that one. And then there are some like orcs that are chasing them, whatever. But like Frodo still, I don't know. I still get at the end of this book that Frodo still doesn't quite. He he grasps the fact that this is a, a huge ultimate burden, but he doesn't really have the. I don't know. He doesn't really have the context to be able to um, place himself and his friends, who are still living these last few vestiges of the Shire, mm -hmm. um, where he can sort of retreat to and not think about things. Like, like the 
the kind of what he's doing is less important because it would have the same effect whether he were doing a different quest, mm -hmm. I suppose. And I think he's also spent a lot of the book screwing himself up, as Sam says, to think that he's alone, mm -hmm. especially because of the nature of the ring that's probably egging him towards that as well. Mm -hmm. So like, there's the part at the end where he just feels so unbelievably relieved when he realizes that Sam's going to go with him, mm -hmm. probably because like he's gone in circles and in circles and in circles about, like, I have to do this, I will die, I have to do this, I will die, and I have to be alone. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I, I really like that. Um, I think, no, don't have too much to add, but I just, I think it's kind of neat on, on, on that point in him kind of screwing himself to, up to go alone, as well as talking about him and Sam being on the same page, but separated, and we get that line with like Boromir when he comes up to him, it's like where there are so many, all speech becomes a debate without end, but two together may perhaps find wisdom in his need to take someone, but kind of like fear at it, and then it's Boromir who shows up, and then the ensuing events like follow, it just kind of, starts showing how everything is kind of how disjointed this this whole like scene is and how everything is kind of becoming before it breaks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Corinne? Yeah, I think a, a big part of it too where we're talking about, you know, going alone isn't the best, which which we know it isn't, but in the moment that Boromir turns on Frodo, that suddenly I think you can argue that becomes sort of the right thing to do because if someone as honorable as Boromir is going to fall to the ring and he brings a you know, the large group of companions or even a few group of companions, that's more people that have the potential to fall to the ring mm -hmm. in this and that is also one of the worst things that could happen and if you're going to go into Mordor and that happen. Mm -hmm. So I think on so Frodo sort of for, at first when he's thinking, well I need to take this on, it's my class, I need to do it alone, is him not thinking about necessarily the Cause the ring, but the second Boromir turns on him, that's that's a fairly reasonable yeah, perspective yeah. on that. And then it, he's got the good fortune that Sam decides to ignore all of that and just go with him. <laughs> yep, he has really good friends. Uh, Bryn? Um, I think Boromir is important not just because he allows Frodo to think, oh, there are consequences to go with the people, but also because um, I think it's clear that Hobbits are really often stronger in and it's, that's kind of what I think the catalyst is not just that, oh, I must be go alone, but oh, I, I see the decision now that I have to really face mm -hmm. what's really happening. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. Um, okay, so yeah, let's move on to Boromir. Um, <laughs> so I think we really ought to, as Rick likes to call it, uh, we should read Boromir's ring-induced monologue, um, which is actually a little bit of a dialogue. Um, so we're going to need two players. We're going to need a Boromir. You want to be Boromir? Or I don't care who, but... Okay, cool. Can I be somebody? Yeah, you can be Boromir. Um, and a Frodo? Oh, okay. Karin, you can be the narrator. Alright. always the narrator, damn it. Um, so we're going to read... There's, there's a lock here. So you see the paragraph that starts wandering aimlessly at first in the wood, like right after the line break? Um, so we're going to go down from there to uh, literally when Boromir starts talking, which was, I was afraid for you, Frodo. Um, actually, let's just read this whole section. You can start wandering aimlessly <coughs> through the wood, and we're going to stop when they stop talking. All right. Wandering aimlessly at first in the wood, Frodo found that his feet were leading him towards the slopes of the hill. He came to a path, the dwindling ruins of a road long ago. 
In steep places, stairs of stone had been hewn, but now they were cracked and worn and split by the roots of trees. For some time he climbed, not caring which way he went, until he came to a grassy place. Rowan trees grew about it, and in the midst was a wide, flat stone. The little upland lawn was open upon the east and was filled now with the early sunlight. Frodo halted and looked out over the river, far below him, to toll Brandir, and the birds wheeling in the great gulf of air between him and the untrodden isle. The voice of Ravros was a mighty roaring mingled with a deep, throbbing boom. He sat down on the stone and cupped his chin in his hands, staring eastward, but seeing little with his eyes. All that had happened since Bilbo left the Shire was passing through his mind, and he recalled and pondered everything that he could remember of Gandalf's words. Time went on, and still he was no nearer to a choice. Suddenly he awoke from his thoughts. A strange feeling came to him that something was behind him, that unfriendly eyes were upon him. He sprang up and turned, but all that he saw to his surprise was Boromir, and his face was smiling and kind. I was afraid for you, Frodo. If Aragorn is right and orcs are near, then none of us should wander alone, and you least of all. So much depends on you. And my heart, too, is heavy. May I stay now and talk for a while, since I have found you? It would comfort me. Where there are so many, all speech becomes a debate without end, but two together may perhaps find wisdom. You are kind, but I do not think that any speech will help me, for I know what I should do, but I am afraid of doing it, Boromir. Afraid. Boromir stood silent. Rarus roared endlessly on. The wind murmured in the branches of the trees. Frodo shivered. Suddenly Boromir came and sat beside him. Are you sure that you do not suffer needlessly? I wish to help you. You need counsel in your hard choice. Will you not take mine? I think I know already what counsel you would give, Boromir. And it would seem like wisdom, but for the warning of my heart. Warning? Warning against what? Against delay. Against the way that seems easier. Against refusal of the burden that is laid on me. Against, well, if it must be said, against trust in the strength and truth of men. Yet that strength has long protected you far away in your little country, though you knew it not. I do not doubt the valor of your people, but the world is changing. The walls of Minas Tirith may be strong, but they are not strong enough. If they fail, what then? We shall fall in battle valiantly. Yet still there is hope that they will not fail. No hope while the ring lasts. Ah, the ring, said Boromir, his eyes lighting. <laughs> the ring, is it not a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt for so small a thing? So small a thing. And I have seen it only for an instant in the house of Elrond. Could I not have a sight of it again? Frodo looked up. His heart went suddenly cold. He caught the strange gleam in Boromir's eyes, yet his face was still kind and friendly. It is best that it should lie hidden. As you wish, I care not. Yet may I not even speak of it, for you seem ever to think only of its power in the hands of the enemy, of its evil uses, not of its good. The world is changing, you say. Minas Tirith will fall if the ring lasts. But why? Certainly, if the ring were with the enemy. But why, if it were with us? not at the council, because we cannot use it, and what is done with it turns to evil. Boromir got up and walked about impatiently. So you go on. Gandalf, Elrond, all these folk have taught you to say so. For themselves, they may be right. These elves and half-elves and wizards, they would come to grief, perhaps. Yet often, I doubt if they are wise and not merely timid. But each to his own kind. 
True-hearted men, they will not be corrupted. We of Minas Tirith have been staunch through long years of trial. We do not desire the power of wizard lords, only strength to defend ourselves, strength in a just cause. And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the ring of power. It is a gift, I say, a gift to the foes of Mordor. It is mad not to use it, to use the power of the enemy against him. The fearless, the ruthless, these alone will achieve victory. What could not a warrior do in this hour, a great leader? What could not Aragorn do? Or, if he refuses, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. How I would drive the hosts of Mordor, and all men would flock to my banner. Boromir strode up and down, speaking ever more loudly. Almost he seemed to have forgotten Frodo, while his talk dwelt on walls and weapons and the mustering of men. And he drew plans for great alliances and glorious victories to be. And he cast out Mordor and became himself a mighty king, benevolent and wise. Suddenly he stopped and waved his arms. And they tell us to throw it away. I do not say destroy it. That might be well if reason could show any hope of doing so. It does not. The only plan that is proposed to us is that a halfling should walk blindly into Mordor and offer the enemy every chance of recapturing it for himself. Folly. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> Surely you see it, my friend. You say that you are afraid. If it is so, the boldest should pardon you. But is it not really your good sense that revolts? No, I am afraid. Simply afraid. But I am glad to have heard you speak so fully. My mind is clearer now. Then you will come to Minas Tirith, cried Boromir. His eyes were shining and his face eager. You misunderstand me. But you will come at least for a while. My city is not far now, and it is little further from there to Mordor than from here. We have been long in the wilderness, and you need news of what the enemy is doing before you make a move. Come with me, Frodo. You need rest before your venture, if go you must. He laid his hand on the hobbit's shoulder in friendly fashion, but Frodo felt the hand trembling with suppressed excitement. He stepped quickly away and eyed with alarm the tall man, nearly twice his height and many times his match in strength. Why are you so unfriendly? I am a true man, neither thief nor tracker. I need your ring, that you know now, but... I give you my word that I do not desire to keep it. Will you not at least let me make trial of my plan? Lend me the ring. No, no. The council laid it upon me to bear it. It is by our own folly that the enemy will defeat us. How it angers me, fool, obstinate fool, running willfully to death and ruining our cause. If any mortals have claim to the ring, it is the men of Numenor and not halflings. It is not yours save by unhappy chance. It might have been mine. It should have been mine. Give it to me. <laughs> Frodo did not answer, but moved away till the great flat stone stood between them. Come, come, my friend, said Boromir in a softer voice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Why not get rid of it? Why not be free of your doubt and fear? You can lay the blame on me if you will. You can say that I was too strong and took it by force. For I am too strong for you, halfling. He cried, and suddenly he sprang over the stone and leaped at Frodo. His fair and pleasant face was hideously changed. A raging fire was in his eyes. Frodo dodged aside again and uh, Frodo dodged aside and again put the stone between them. There was only one thing he could do. 
Trembling, he pulled out the ring upon its chain and quickly slipped it on his finger, even as Boromir sprang at him. The man gasped, stared for a moment amazed, then ran wildly about, seeking here and there among the rocks and trees. Miserable trickster! Let me get my hands on you. Now I see your mind. You will take the ring to Sauron and sell us all. You have only waited your chance to leave us in the lurch. Curse you and all halflings to death and darkness! Then catching his foot on a stone, he fell sprawling and lay upon his face. For a while, he was as still as if his own curse had struck him down. Then suddenly he wept. He rose and passed his hand over his eyes, dashing away the tears. What have I said? What have I done? Frodo, Frodo, come back. A madness took me, but it has passed. Come back. Nice. That's so good. <laughs> good job, Excellent, excellent reading. Um, I don't, there's just, there's a ton of stuff going on here in this passage. Um, I don't even know really how to start this. At the beginning. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what um, elements of Warbeer's character are coming out in this passage that perhaps the ring is drawing on? Like, well, so yeah. His desire to save his people from mm -hmm. Sauron. Yeah, definitely. Anything else? Um, Josh? Um, the fact that he sees the world in terms of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, elaborate? Um, the fact that everything he thinks about in all his planning is all about armies and beating Mordor by force of arms mm -hmm. and building up defenses in the city. Yep, yep, totally. Uh, Sophia? Um, his pride. He's actually mm -hmm. really similar to the Latrio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ariel? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, his, his pride. I, I just want to expand on what Sophia was saying. Because um, he, he's really proud of his heritage, and he can't stand the idea that Frodo doesn't trust him. And so... He tries to make Frodo trust him, but at the same time, like he's just basically taking his own grip. So, like the more the more he tries to, to talk about how great men are, the more he demonstrates how terrible an idea an idea or a decision it is for Frodo to actually have anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally, uh, Matt. Yeah, you also see that like he wants personally to be the one to do it because he mm -hmm. mentions Aragorn, but then after that, it's like, oh wait, I'll set myself up as king mm -hmm. instead, which he also like claims through his heritage the like a more right to the ring, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't really fall on him. Yeah, and I think you see something in this monologue that kind of comes out, because we know that in in the previous chapters, Boromir has always been very like, no, it's okay, like I'm the son of the steward, like I'm coming for like, I'm coming for my people, I'm coming for Gondor, I will follow the leader of this company, like I am loyal, a loyal friend. But here you can see that kind of coming to the surface of like, um, kind of that pride, and I think it, it kind of makes sense, where he's like, um, yeah, like, Aragorn's the king, and Aragorn is the one who's supposed to help us, and he's, he's the leader, and he's the one that I have to follow. But I'm the one who's been fighting. I'm the one who's been protecting Gondor. Like, I deserve to, like, be the one to save Gondor, not Aragorn. Where's Aragorn being? He hasn't been here. Like, you get that sense that really comes out that's kind of been bubbling below the surface in previous this. We haven't had a king in centuries. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like you were saying earlier, his patriotism 
Mm-hmm. Like he sees the world as like he sees Gondor as sort of the beacon of hope. Like we're holding the line against the forces of evil, and he thinks that if you're not willing to join us in the fight against Sauron, then you are against us. He sees the world in terms of black and white. If you're not willing to come to us and help us defeat the enemy all, all by ourselves, then you are trying to subvert us, or you're working with the enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, did you have that? No. Oh, okay. Any of you guys? Okay, Brim? Um, it's also like he's views like being, he says that I'm a true man, neither a thief nor a tracker, mm-hmm. which shows how like he views, um, a, uh, he wants to be a direct, he wants to have a direct approach. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to like be kind of win through trickery or mm-hmm. through like being subtle. He, he wants to have like that valor, that uh, defeat in battle, mm-hmm. which really works against him. Mm-hmm. And when he says, like, I am a true man, it's, uh, like, many times, in fact, even in the previous chapter, Boromir has said, you know, the men of Gondor, we do not desert our friends in a time of need. The men of Gondor, we are loyal. The men of Gondor, we are honest. And so he even tries to bring that back here. Like, why don't you trust me? Like, the men of Gondor are always true to their word. The men of Gondor will always help their friends in need. But he doesn't realize that he's not helping, right? Um, anyone? Okay, Corinne? Um, I think a big part of that too is, I mean, wanting for personal glory, but like the glory of Gondor, that Gondor who has fought so long for, and been on the border of Mordor, that it, that it should be Gondor, not elves, mm-hmm. not, you know, not the rangers, not halflings, but it's Gondor that needs to take out the force of Mordor because they almost have like more of a right to take down the Dark Lord because they've been fighting on the front lines mm-hmm. for so long. Also has like kind of an interesting perspective on men in general, and kind of in that you also see in the same spot like an, an inability to learn from people's past mistakes. Like mm-hmm. there's that line about like stalwart men or men from part like will not fall, mm-hmm. which is like I don't know if you look at any of the Numenorean history, it's pretty clear that that's not correct. But he's mm-hmm. just blinded himself to that, mm-hmm. as well as like he seems to have faith in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also he's like I don't know. I, it strikes me that he's, he's there's no real concern through him about like ends and means mm-hmm. like it's all about all about the ends it's not really a concern for like what the ring might be like or, mm-hmm. or what you might have to do and then which kind of culminates when he tries to act forcibly take it from Frodo but he just doesn't seem concerned about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nick? Well you, are, you also have that same language with Saruman because Saruman of many colors he said you know our ends will not change only the means by which we achieve them it's the exact same thing he's fallen under the sway of the ring and Sauron's influence and like it, they both sort of they want to defeat Sauron but they also kind of want to supplant him in a way because they've fallen under the ring's influence mm-hmm. 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 yeah that's that's the key with ring and monologue in general is the fact that if you defeat the evil you become, you become the evil if you, have, if you do it with power ring. Josh? yeah um, I think it becomes especially clear that he doesn't care about how you achieve it when he goes straight from the fearless to the ruthless mm-hmm. will achieve victory mm-hmm. because yeah. ruthless is significantly worse than fearless. Yes. Fearless is probably okay yeah. in some cases. So well, depends. Yeah, not if you're from Golden. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia? Oh, um, I think he's also like, he's really he's really suspicious of the other mm-hmm. and he doesn't really trust anything that he can't verify through his own experience. Mm-hmm. So he really rags on Frodo for just listening to other people because mostly because you know he doesn't realize the impact the ring has personally had on Frodo. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that Frodo is like only 
think that like I think that's one of the biggest things that comes out in this chapter is that Boromir is not he believes in what he can see and what he can do physically and that comes out right in this line where we the men we of Minas Tirith have been staunched through long years of trial. We do not desire the power of wizard lords, only the strength to defend ourselves, strength in a just cause. So like you definitely get that sense that Boromir doesn't really like it's it's kind of weird because it's, Boromir doesn't really seem, seem to tend to believe in like the elf magic or like the power of like this wisdom and stuff. But he's requesting this like magical item to help them become stronger. So and, so it's almost like he he doesn't truly believe in the effects of, of the ring, and he doesn't really believe in the effects of elf magic. But he's like, I like I need this artifact to see what it can do for Gondor. He he doesn't really have faith in the in the things that he can't see, and he can't doesn't have faith in the things that he can't verify himself, like you just said. Ariel and then Nick and then Jesse. I think he he does sort of believe like like he's yeah. like oh it can make us stronger but he doesn't believe that it can be stronger than his own willpower. Mm-hmm. But it very clearly is. I think um, the uh, the line where um, like Frodo says we're not the council because we cannot use it and what is done with it turns to evil. And that uh, is I think the break right before. The ring sort of takes over Boromir's like rationalization faculties, mm-hmm. and like he just because um, he was at the council and he like, he has acknowledged that the entire way through. Mm-hmm. It's just now the ring is uh, was like okay, just kind of like dismantling that thought process within Boromir and playing with his pride, his patriotism, that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. um, and it really comes out in that in that monologue. Mm-hmm. Totally, um, Nick. Well. You're just going along with that. He's he's distrustful of like elves and, and wizards because he sees them as being these sort of, you know, like kind of old old sort of lore masters kind of thing who just sit up in their towers looking up at the stars all day. Like you know, to him, inaction is just as evil as you know working alongside the enemy because you know because they're not actively fighting the way that Gondor is. He distrusts what they say because in his mind it's sort of you know how should they know they're not. You know, they don't actually fight the enemy. They just stay behind in their secret little kingdoms, just letting us die and by the hundreds or whatever. So he's, he's distrustful of anything they might say. And if they say, oh, this, you know, this ring, we, we cannot trust it, whatever, in his mind, it's like, oh, you know, what do they know? We should use it, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yep. Yeah, again, just sort of not not having a lot of trust in the stuff, in things that he hasn't experienced or in people who aren't like men that he knows. And Jesse? Yeah, no, I think just going off of. That is Gondor hasn't really been told a whole lot. It had been very much kept in the loop, and there hasn't been much in the way of this magical lore that they know of. So they're and Boromir has it just uh, he sees it as a tool, not as an artifact of silence power or any of that. It's just it's a weapon, no different than any other sword. Sauron's nature really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, yeah. Right? Yeah, for me, what makes this rant so interesting is that I don't think there's anything until right at the end, I think, when he says Frodo's going to take the ring through Sauron or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing actually like irrational he says of, like, in this entire rant. Mm-hmm. Um, like, from his perspective, it's born on a misunderstanding of, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you can't just, you know, become a dictator and then destroy the ring when you're done. You know, and um, even a misunderstanding that, you know, the ring isn't necessarily his by right because the Sildor has it. There's actually a Sildor's bane, so it's like... Kind of, I, I think he doesn't just doesn't understand the power of the ring, but like from from where he's coming from, I think he's like he is completely rational, and I mean it goes about it the wrong way, but like I, I don't think I, I think that like even without the influence of the ring, he was he would, would have been thinking the exact same things. Mm-hmm. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Just brought it up to the surface. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And yeah, and I think it's exactly like like you guys have been saying, where he just he doesn't really understand what it does. He just thinks that it's like a weapon of power that you can use exactly what you just said. I just reiterated what you just said. Okay, <laughs> um, I think Boromir has in the, just sort of within himself the reason why, the same thing Sauron has in himself, the reason why the way they're doing the quest works is he, he knows, a, like we've been saying, he doesn't really understand why you wouldn't want the power to, in Sauron's case, he doesn't understand why people wouldn't want the power. In Boromir's case, he doesn't understand why you wouldn't want the power to do something good. Mm-hmm. And that's he's saying, but it's X, you know, it, it, you know, it's a bonus. It's something extra that we can do good things with. And he doesn't understand the concept of stealth and trickery, which, which is exactly why this quest works the way it does. Because you're sending a hobbit into Mordor, and who thinks of sending this little, mm-hmm. you know, who thinks of sneaking into Mordor, where the obvious course is let's go and meet Sauron in military might. So I think the ring is particularly good at picking up on that because it's in Sauron's nature in and of himself. Mm-hmm. And Warmir has that to a much lesser extent and not specifically for the domination of others until ring and use monologue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. So my next question is where, where like, what's the shift? Or, like, what, how much of this is Boromir and how much of it is the ring? Or is there a point, like, I think Arya pointed out, that you can see where it, it shifts between just Boromir talking and like really the influence of the ring. I mean, there's not there's not really an easy answer, but does anyone have any thoughts on that, Josh? I think it's all Boromir mm-hmm. because, in general, evil cannot create. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely not just Boromir. Okay, so you think even like when Boromir decides that he's going to like attack Frodo to get the ring from him, that's totally something that was just he was thinking. Um, it's, it's something that he, that even without the ring, he could consider under certain circumstances, mm-hmm. but the ring has brought it to the service and made it much more likely to happen. Okay. I don't totally agree, but okay. <laughs> Sophia? Um, personally, I kind of see it as, like, there's a standard ring recipe, and then, like, depending on who it's affecting... That's what you add to it. Mm-hmm. So it's like the standard ring recipe is what Gandalf talks about mm-hmm. way in the beginning, where he says like it starts with me wanting to use it for good, but then eventually I start to realize that more good would come if I controlled everybody. So then I want to dominate. Mm-hmm. So you kind you see like a version of that happening with Galadriel, except with you know 
Galadriel sprinkles. Sort of. <laughs> and here you see like the same thing that happened with Gandalf and Galadriel, except with like Boromir cranberries in the recipe. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think this this monologue is good because we do get other rain-induced monologues later in the books, but I think as far as I remember, this is like the most clear-cut like ring really affecting someone in the whole book. So it's cool if we can, if we decompose this, we can use it kind of to deconstruct other monologues that we'll be seeing in the future to a lesser extent. Um, Brayden? Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I mean, I think that the, the input screen is also building up through the whole time. You know, first saying that, you know, oh, I can just tell people I took you by force. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, hey, wait, I could actually take you from you by mm-hmm. force. And then I think when, when with the line, give it to me, is when he's just like completely gone to the ring. Because even after that, that's when he starts saying crazy things about Frodo wanting to bring the ring to Sauron and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's only, it, it's kind of right at the end that he's completely gone. And yeah. Other than that, it's just him building up. Yeah, that's what I was going to say too. Like, I don't think the idea of like taking the ring from Frodo even really crossed his mind before this monologue because he says that. He's like, he's just like, well, you could just say that like I took it from you because I'm pretty strong. Wait a second, you're actually <laughs> super strong and I can totally take you down to take the ring. Like, it seems to me that that's not something he'd ever thought of before, just the way he says it. Um, Corinne? I'd say the shift actually happens just slightly earlier with, you know, he has his whole monologue and this is the glorious thing I could do with the ring and Frodo's like, uh-huh. Thinking is that you're kind of crazy, so I'm not going to go to Minas Tirith. And I think that's, you know, right when he says everything that's done with it turns to evil. That's when there's sort of like a ring shift being like, he's on to us. Sort of. <laughs> and, that, and then you see like a serious acceleration right up until the point where he tries to take the ring from Frodo. But I think that's almost where like ring agency sort of takes over and it's, it's like, okay, no, he's seen through it.
Yeah, and I guess we can say that, yeah, like, the Ring's influence on Boromir definitely did not start right at this monologue. Like, I think, I think a lot of the stuff that he's saying earlier, before that switch, where he's like, oh, you know, like, maybe we should consider taking it to Minas Tirith, maybe we should do this, like, the Ring has been working on him since the Council of Elrond. It's not just, it's not just right now. So, yeah. The problem is, I think that he also, like, directly plays with the influence, too, because, so he's, you know, kind of susceptible, and the Ring's gonna but he doesn't like he doesn't think the ring is inherently evil, so he's not gonna have any idea that like oh maybe this is the ring or maybe this is a problematic influence or maybe that's a bad thought. Mm -hmm. So he just seems to sit there and like toy with them and like expand on these ideas and totally play with that influence of the ring. So he just brings more and more and more mm -hmm. on himself, and then it just um, I like what Prince said about acceleration. It mm -hmm. just finally kind of snaps. And mm -hmm. Yep. Totally, and I think that, yeah, it's, it's exactly because he doesn't realize that the ring can have this influence, because he doesn't sort of really super 100% believe in all of this, like, magical stuff, so he just thinks it's, you know, normal, um, and his own thoughts that make sense. Um, ben, did you have your hand up? No. Okay, Sophia? Um, building off the, like, series of transition points idea, mm -hmm. um, I think like each transition point kind of also marks the ring digging deeper and deeper into Boromir's paranoias. Mm -hmm. So it starts with like the paranoias that are a little bit more reasonable given his level of like information at mm -hmm. the moment. And then each step just takes him like deeper and deeper into like government conspiracies <laughs> until he's kind of gotten to the point where he's screaming that like Frodo is going to sell them all out to Sauron and all halflings should die mm -hmm. because he just keeps building off the previous idea and mm -hmm. making it worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Matt? Yeah, I think that really ties into like a huge part of the influence is like it's like imaginative almost. Mm -hmm. Like he's conjuring up all these like fascinations and stories, which seems to be a huge part of the ring's like influence. You can kind of like imagine what you're gonna do with it or imagine how you're gonna get it or mm -hmm. whatnot and it about this this monologue is, is is right at the end where like he's about to like basically like just beat up Frodo and take the ring from him forcibly and then Frodo puts on the ring disappears and then I'm like quite there so no he's like curse you halflings and then he trips and falls and he gets up and this is really well done by Sean Bean in the movie where he falls and then he gets up and immediately he's like crying because he's like what have I done come back, a madness took me, but it has passed. What do you think is going on there when he has this, like, sudden realization? Like maybe internally, but at least with language, he's not 
talking about like, oh, I just realized the ring is trying to control me sort of thing. It's simply a madness. And I think that's part of, yeah, I think that's part of his misunderstanding too, is that like, I mean, I'm sure he'll, he'll realize it's the ring quite quickly, but I think when he didn't believe that the ring had this sort of influence over him, now he's just like, oh my God, what just happened? Like, I cannot believe I just went that crazy. And then he'll kind of realize, oh, it is the ring. Like, the ring can make you crazy. But in the moment, he's just like, something really weird happened. I cut you off 100% and just uh, said my own thing. But anyway. <laughs> it's fine. I'll forgive your response. <laughs> Matt? I wonder if he almost does have some kind of an understanding at that point. Because, like, the way he says it, right? Like, a madness took me. He uses madness. He doesn't use, like, oh, the ring was, the ring took me. But he still says, like, took me has that same connotation to it. Just, like, the ring, like, sees me and he's just mm-hmm. phrasing it as a madness so I, I wonder if he does kind of understand mm-hmm. at that point mm-hmm. like the scales have fallen which I kind of wonder if the ring like took it just too far because I it's speculative but I kind of have the impression that if he didn't actually physically attack Frodo and Frodo disappeared just before then he wouldn't have gotten it so I wonder if it's almost like the ring has just taken it too far and it snapped and he realized kind of what was going on yeah maybe yeah, no, totally. That's what we're that's what we're here for. Bryn? I was saying that it's interesting because like later when he comes back to the group, he still doesn't take responsibility for what he's done. He's kinda like mm-hmm. shying away from it. And so part of like a madness took me also is like he can be like, It wasn't me, it wasn't me at all. Even though a lot of it did come from him, it was just kind of brought to the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that, that makes sense because obviously he's very ashamed of what he's done. And I think even though he doesn't own up to it right away, which I wrote down somewhere, that he doesn't own up to it right away. He does really internalize the guilt of what he's done, and he takes that to, spoilers, he dies, um, to his what? death. <laughs> um, but I oh, think, I and, and you, can, you can see that, right? Because like as soon as he comes back, like Aragorn gets really mad at him, because Aragorn is a smart dude, and like realized what happened. And he charges Boromir with like, so Boromir's like, what should I do? Like, what have I done or whatever? And Aragorn's like, hey, you got to protect those two hobbits that ran off. Like, that's your job because you fucked up. Sorry, Boromir. (laughs) And I think even though Boromir doesn't completely admit what he's done right away, he really, he's a man of Gondor, right? Like, he internalizes that he's done something bad and he pays for that for the rest of his incredibly short life. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and he like dies defending Mary Pippin at the last charge, trying, and I think that is him trying to get over that. But anyway, we should probably talk about that more in the Two Towers when that actually happens. And, okay, Ariel and then Brayden. Yeah. Um, no, I, uh, going back to the phrase of madness took me, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting because it is in that moment that Boromir is admitting that he's not in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, like, Boromir comes off to me very much as a control freak, very much. Mm-hmm. Like, well, not like a control freak, but like just someone who is used to having himself under his own power and he doesn't have, you know, things don't happen to Boromir that he can't control, you know, like mm-hmm. he can handle whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is a moment where he just is entirely carried away by something and he can't even like he can't even put the blame on the outside because it, it took parts of him and carried that away too mm-hmm. so he was complicit in sort of um losing control mm-hmm. uh, or rather he supplied the means to mm-hmm. to lose his willpower over himself mm-hmm. and so that like i can only imagine how devastating that must be for boromir and mm-hmm. so yeah i don't i don't think he really has an That's sort of feeding into his reticence when he rejoins the group and, you know, 
Well, it's also he's ashamed, but then also he doesn't really know what to say. Yeah, totally. I think I think you're right. I think it's because it's, it's something that's totally like ne- nothing like that has happened to him ever. Yeah. And so he, he just doesn't, doesn't really know. have any words for the experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Brayden? Um, I know we want to talk about protecting Mary and Pippin like for the next book, but I think there's one part of it that relates to this I didn't realize before, um, which is that he curses hobbits to death, like mm-hmm. in the middle of that. And I think we've seen from a lot of Tolkien's works that curses are like really significant and mm-hmm. important. Um, so I was thinking it was like really interesting. He actually does that and then spends his last moments of like protecting hobbits to kind mm-hmm. of undo the curse almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Or yeah. Yeah, because I thought about that too, because curses are really important in the Silmarillion, but I don't know, there's also like a part where I thought like, yeah, maybe that curse isn't really in effect because I wasn't really Boromir, right? Like it was, yeah, it was kind of a ring. But yes, that's, I, I like that, and that's like a really good parallel. Um, Matt? Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, so anyway, Boromir has just a bad lot in life, <laughs> and he unfortunately gets caught up in this huge mess. Um, so anyway, so the aftermath of this is that Frodo runs away because Boromir is scary because he's super strong and he carried two hobbits up a mountain. Um, <laughs> That's some pro Boromir right there. Um, so we'll get to this part that I like and that Brayden talked about at the beginning. So Frodo goes up on top of Amon Hen, the hill of seeing. Um, and he, or is it hearing? Wait, is that on him hearing? Seeing. Or seeing. Seeing. Yeah, okay. He's seeing and he gets this like super cool moment which where he sees like all of Middle Earth from the top of this hill, and then he ends up seeing the eye of Sauron, um, and so so I'll just read. And suddenly he felt the eye. There was an eye in the dark tower that did not sleep. He knew that it had become aware of his gaze. A fierce, eager will was there. It leapt towards him, almost like a finger. He felt it searching for him. Very soon it would nail him down. Know just exactly where he was. Amon La, it touched. It glanced upon Glatol Brandir. He threw himself from the seat, crouching, covering his head with his gray hood. He heard himself crying out, Never, never, or was it verily I come, I come to you? He could not tell. Then, as a flash from some other point of power, there came to his mind another thought Take it off, take it off, fool, take it off, take off the ring. The two powers strove in him. For a moment, perfectly balanced between their piercing points, he writhed and tormented. Suddenly he was aware of himself again. Frodo, neither the voice nor the eye, free to choose, and with one remaining instant in which to do so. He took the ring off his finger. He was kneeling in clear sunlight before the high seat. A black shadow seemed to pass like an arm above him. It missed down on and groped out west and faded. Then all the sky was clean and blue and birds sang in every tree. So, like, this, this moment is, like, so cool because it's just, like... Because, so we have... We already put those three... Uh, we talked about the three hills a lot last time we did this chapter, I remember. But there's Ammon Law, which is on the other side of the river. And then there's Ammon Hen, which he's standing on, which is on the, the side of the river that he's on, which is like the side that's not controlled by orcs. And Tolbrandir, which is kind of in the middle. And then he sees, he sees like this shadow that like literally just like goes over Ammon Law, over like the east side, like the Mordor side of the river, and stops like kind of touching Tolbrandir. He's he's standing on Ammon Head, and then he hears like the the eye of Sauron like pulling him, and then he hears this voice, and then he realizes that like he has to make the choice. And I think it's just like such a cool like battle between good and evil, and like what is Frodo's role in that, and also what is the voice that he hears? All good questions. Okay, Josh, Ariel, Matt. Spoiler alert, the voice is Gandalf. Yes. Okay. What? <laughs> what? Um, 
okay, Ariel. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I had to remember what I was going to say. Uh, no, I was going to say I, I really like how there's that moment where Frodo is neither the voice nor the eye. It's just Frodo. Mm -hmm. And he has to make the decision. And mm -hmm. you're like, oh, he could make other decisions. If, you know, like he's being swayed by these two forces, but in the, at the end of the day, it's just him there, and, and neither force has its um, has power over him, mm -hmm. and so he is sort of free to choose, which is really interesting. And again, mm -hmm. we're going back to sort of discussions of willpower, but that idea that there are these, you know, these paths that are so strong, but you are, you know, like free to choose between them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's I think it's awesome because like these two paths, which like I'm pretty sure voice is supposed to be Gandalf. Uh, that's what I remember discussing the last time. I don't super remember the justification because we talked about it for a long time. Okay. Um, anyway, so because there's these two powers that are like the Eye of Sauron and like Gandalf who are so like powerful and like yeah. so much more lofty than Frodo is, but even Frodo, like a small little hobbit, makes a big difference. Oh, and it, it like really contrasts with the scene just before that with Boromir, but Boromir did not have that choice. Mm -hmm. And so you can see how easy it was um, for even someone like Boromir to fall under the sway of something and not realize he was under the sway of something until it was too late. Mm -hmm. Whereas Frodo has this very uh, point of clarity mm -hmm. where he can, he can recognize that um, there are these forces working on him. Mm -hmm. Totally. Matt? Yeah, there's most of it through back and forth, but it's just, yeah, it's really neat <laughs> that it's like with the two forces to kind of, like you've got Boromir falling to it and like Frodo, like earlier scenes with he's putting on the ring or the influence, but then you just have that scandal, but that, um, like, balance almost, the counter, kind of like infusing with that force, and then it just all that and all those, these mighty lofty powers just kind of battling for this halflings <laughs> for him, and, um, and then it just brings us to that moment where, like, he just, okay, he's going to listen to Gandalf. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, next time, I'll pick you first, so that you don't have to go around the entire circle. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Tolkien's story in the Lord of the Rings that he wants to get across is like really 
becomes obvious in this moment, which is, like, really cool. Um, okay. So, yeah, okay, so after Frodo gets his cool moment on Amon Hen where he gets to see all of Middle Earth, um, then we suddenly go back to the rest of the company and we get this weird tone shift where we become Sam for the rest of the book, like Sam is the narrator instead of Frodo, which is interesting and I've also always um, had sort of a love-hate relationship with um, Tolkien's narrator choices, but yeah, anyway. Um, so, and then we can, yeah, so we come back to the, um, the company, and they're kind of making their own decision about what should happen, and I like that Aragorn's basically like, everyone should go with Frodo, except Mary Pippin and Boromir. <laughs> 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 like, I guess, like, let's go with Boromir, but if you really want to come with us, he'd be fine. Um, but yeah, so then they're all discussing, and then Boromir comes back and is like, yeah, Frodo ran off. Haha, ha, because of reasons. <laughs> and they're all like, oh shit, we gotta go look for uh, Frodo. And then everyone runs off, and then Mary Pippin runs off, and then Sam runs off after Aragorn, and they all they all run off. Um, so I think the last thing we should talk about in this chapter is Sam, because I think Sam has some pretty admirable actions here. Um, first of all, Sam gets this like really cool dialogue, or yeah, when they're talking about where to go. Um, and they're all like, oh, I wonder what, like, Frodo's deciding right now. And, uh, Sam is like, I don't think you understand my master at all. He isn't hesitating about which way to go. Of course not. What's the good of Minas Tirith anyway? To him, I mean, begging your pardon, pardon, Master Boromir. Um, now, where's he got to? He's been a bit queer lately, to my mind. But anyway, he's not in this, this business. He's off to his home, as he always said, and no blame to him. But Mr. Frodo, he knows, Mr. Frodo, he knows he's got to find the cracks of doom if he can. But he's afraid. Now it's come to the point he's just plain terrified. That's what his trouble is. Of course he's had a bit of schooling, so to speak. We all have, since we left home. Or he'd be so terrified he'd just fling the ring in the river and bolt. But he's still too frightened to start. And he isn't worrying about us either, whether we'll go along with him or no. He knows we mean to. That's another thing that's bothering him. If he screws himself up to go, he'll want to go alone. Mark my words, we're going to have trouble when he comes back, for he'll screw himself up all right, as sure as his name's Baggins. So Sam just gets this, like, wonderful, like, speech here where he, like, completely understands Frodo, I think, more than, like, anyone. anyone, And more than, like, Frodo Frodo understands him. Like, Sam, Sam is just, like, this great, great hobbit and loyal friend. And then, of course, when everyone's running away, he's the only one that thinks, that knows where Frodo is, and then follows him, and they end up leaving together, and it's super, super cute. Um, but yeah, so what are people's thoughts on Sam? Did I just say everything that people were thinking? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Sam is great. Yeah. He's basically yeah. gone. Sam yeah. is my heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's sort of, sort of on like a weird tangential thing. It's almost a little bit... I mean, Sam, of course, would know Frodo the best, but it's almost a little bit strange that, like, Mary and Pippin weren't also on this line, because it's very similar to how he leaves with, like, conspiracy and yeah. past, mm-hmm. where he's like, well, i got to go alone, and i got to figure out how to get out of the Shire, and they're like, okay, Gandalf said take people with you, so we're coming with you, and we know that you're going to try and leave us behind, but we're not going to let you. And in some cases, it seemed almost more like that. That was Mary's thing at the beginning, and Sam's really stepping up as sort of the sort of the, the official Frodo minder. <laughs> but it's just strange that they also didn't go on that same line. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sophia. Um, I think the only real difference is like 
that Mary and Pippin just didn't have the same understanding of what Frodo was going to do next, because they definitely had that same, oh, we're going to go with him no matter what. We're absolutely going to go with him. But do we really have to go into Mordor? <laughs> Whereas, like, for Sam, it's like he both is determined to go with Frodo and gets that they have to go to Mordor, so gets where, like, Frodo's going to be going. Yeah, and I think that's because Sam, even though Mary is more of Frodo's friend, I think Sam is more in tune with the song and, like, kind of the. We, we kind of saw that when he was in when he was in Lorien and interacting with the elves. Um, Brian? I mean, I agree with that quite a bit. I think, I think just to add to it a bit, I, I think that the potential difference between Sam, Mary, and Pippin is that Sam didn't really consider his own what he wants to do in a way. He was saying, this is what Frodo wants to do, so unquestionably that's what I'm going to do, where I think Mary and Pippin were more like, you know, well, it'd be kind of nice to see Minas Tirith, but like, if Frodo wants to go to Mordor, we'll still follow him. So it could be wrong with that, but yeah, 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 I think Sam is just like, kind of Frodo knows best, and we're going to do whatever he wants, unquestioningly. Mm-hmm. Arya? Well, I think Brayden's on something with that, because um, I also read it as like, Sam is also his gardener, so he is, this is his employer, as well as his friend. So it takes away a certain level of agency that Sam has to make decisions about what he is going to do with his own life. Um, Because he's just so loyal to Frodo, he's going to sort of do whatever Frodo thinks is best. Mm -hmm. Um, To, I mean, up to a certain point, obviously, but like, um, in a way that Merry and Pippin, as his equals, are not on that wavelength. For Sam, it's his job to kind of figure out what it is, or anticipate what Frodo is thinking and what Frodo wants, mm-hmm. um, and and not for Mary and Pippin. So I think maybe there might be a little bit of a difference there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think that's totally true. Um, anyway, we only have a couple more minutes, but I still really want to ask one more question. I mean, Sam is awesome. We could totally talk about him more. But the final question is, what is the breaking of the Fellowship? When does the Fellowship break? Everyone runs away in different directions. I think, yeah, that's true. <laughs> does it break before then? Does it break after then? Like, Corinne? I think the real break is the second Sam and Frodo decide to go off in the boat. Because mm-hmm. there's real, I mean, everyone's broken up, but if they had sort of regrouped, then you could have a reforming sort of thing, but there's no going back at this point. They've gone on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, Brayden? I would say potentially the break occurs when, as soon as Boromir tries to take the ring, which is mm-hmm. before that point, because at that point, that's when like this fellowship is no longer feasible because Boromir mm-hmm. needs to go alone. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's also a good argument. Sophia? The break could also be when Frodo feels that he needs to go alone, so mm-hmm. when they stop, and then Frodo thinks that we can't solve this as a group anymore, I have to be alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, good. I just always like to ask that because in the movies, because of the way they're structured, it seems like Boromir dying is the breaking of the fellowship, but that's obviously not true because that doesn't even happen in this book. Um, and so yeah, I think it, it, it's, it can be any, any one of those. I see it kind of the way Corinne sees it, where like the breaking of the fellowship is like when they actually leave and can no longer be reunited. But I think also the break, like breaking the trust that they have together happens kind of when Boromir gets overtaken by the ring. I think, yeah, in, in Frodo's mind, the breaking of the fellowship happened as soon as he realized he had to go off alone. But yeah, there's tons of different moments, and basically, the Two Towers is going to be very exciting with all of these different stories and all the characters going in different directions, Rowan. and all everyone getting their own different journey except for Boromir because he dies. What? <laughs> he does get a journey. The yeah. whole first chapter. Is yeah, he gets, he gets an entire chapter and sing song. He has like a yeah. massive experience of journey in like a very short amount of time. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> awful lot of stuff. Do any of the and other... And his body gets a really great journey because he has to go all the way down that river, so like... You don't have that time to get fucked up. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, so that's... Every yeah. In the movies. That's the end. That's the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Yay! <laughs> so yeah, thanks for reading Fellowship of the Ring and for participating in book study all year, you guys. You guys are so awesome. And you should come to our return party. And next year we will be returning with the Two Towers and the Return of the King. And Rick will be back leading book study. So, and good job for Alex for running the entire yeah. <laughs> before you send the email. Well, I have voted. That's hard to do, though. Please send <laughs> in applications for the Froat Scholarship. Um, please send in any submissions. I'll accept submissions. If you want to be on the program for the end of term party, you should submit them by Thursday at midnight so that I have time to put you on the program for Friday. And if you would like to nominate yourself uh, for the executive or if you're just thinking of nominating yourself for the executive and are like, oh, I'm not sure. What exactly does that entail? I don't know uh, if I have enough time or if I want to do that. Please talk to me right now, <laughs> and we'll be good. Okay, cool. Thanks, you guys. Yes? Challenges? Oh, challenges! Yeah. Who wins? Um, okay, so I'm going to award this challenge to Sophia, because your comics were adorable and hilarious. But also, special thanks to Josh for, he, he's going to have three maps in the journal this year, which is, like, really excellent, so good job. And thank you Sophia, sorry, you're going to be the ring bearer for like an extremely short amount of time. Because <laughs> but I mean, you're also entrusting it to Boromir after I demonstrably went crazy, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Um, but yeah, okay. We're just so lending you the ring. It's okay, it's company with Sam because he bears it for a very short amount of time. Yeah, just, exactly. praised him a lot, so. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll, yeah, I'll see all you guys on. I mean, I'll see you now until you leave. <laughs> but I'll see you guys all.